Good morning. Well, now what? Now what? We've been hanging around a person named Jesus since Christmas Day, going through the Gospel of Luke, and here we are a week later. So now what? Most recently, we were on the road to Jerusalem, which we discovered was a road that led not to an earthly throne, but to the throne of a cross. And just when we thought it was all over, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Now the journey is complete from cradle to cross to empty tomb. Christ is risen. Alleluia. He is risen indeed. So now what? If your week was anything like mine, your Easter excitement has already been put to the test. The bold pronouncements of a world reborn, of a new creation ushered in, of the kingdom of God breaking into the present, well, these pronouncements just haven't fit with your experience of real life this past week. Yours was a week of struggle, disappointment, frustration. So while all of this Easter joy seemed so wonderful last week, you now wonder whether it was just too good to be true. Doubt has creeped in concerning the possibility of new life now. What's left is the hope that maybe, just maybe, there's a better life after this one. But as far as this one is concerned, well, I don't think Easter can help me with that. I guess I'll just try hard to be a good person, keep myself entertained and happy, and find a way to make the best of it. Maybe. But Jesus has another idea following Easter Sunday. And Jesus' idea has everything to do with what we would call real life. Jesus has another idea, and it has everything to do with the hours in your day and the days in your week and the weeks in your year and the years that make up what you call life. So to find out just what this idea is, we must continue last week's story and finish Luke's gospel. Now, just a note about today's message. It says in your bulletin we'll be reading Galatians 5 as well, but we don't have time to hang out there. Uh, Lily was listening to my sermon early this morning as, uh, as Steph was getting rally, ready. Lily likes to hang out and kind of catch a preview, and she told me it was way too long. So, so Galatians 5, we'll have to talk about that some next week. Uh, but today we're going we're gonna to stick with the end of Luke 24. First we pray. We pray before we read scripture so that we might hear the story with open hearts and with attentive ears. Let us pray. God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord, as master. We ask that you would send your spirit now to give us deeper insight, encouragement, faith, and hope through the proclamation of the Easter gospel. Amen. Hear these words from the risen Jesus sometime after Easter Sunday. Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. One pilgrimage ends and another begins with the empty tomb. We just completed a series called On the Road Again, which followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, a hundred miles south. And our pilgrimage and our series have now ended last week at the empty tomb. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, which we just read, Jesus goes off-road. Jesus goes off-road, as in he can no longer be found on any physical road. He's no longer with the disciples in the usual way. (laughs) Instead, he withdraws his physical presence from the disciples and from us. He withdraws and enters another dimension called heaven. So the question remains, now what? Now that Jesus is not with us in the usual way, how can we follow him? So the victory of the empty tomb marks the beginning of a new way of following Jesus. The one that begins this new journey, it will take disciples of Jesus into every corner of the world. As they go, disciples will announce the good news of Jesus' victory over sin, death, and the devil. As they go, they will spend their hours, days, weeks, and years demonstrating the implications of that victory for real life. And as they go, they will immerse people in the presence of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything Jesus taught. In short, as they go, they will be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. First, we must return to the fact that Jesus is no longer going to be with his disciples in the usual way. There's going to be a new way of following him. So Jesus has some instructing to do before this happens. He needs to transition the disciples from the old way of following him into the new way of following him. Perhaps some of you parents have experienced that when you send your kids off to college. There's a old way of parenting that's different, going to be different in the new way of parenting when the kid moves out of the home. And so Jesus transitions the the disciples from the old way to the new way. And he does this over the course of 40 days, the book of Acts tells us. Just as Jesus once took 40 days in the wilderness to prepare for his own ministry, 
he now takes 40 days to prepare his disciples for their ministry. So, what does Jesus say in these 40 days? He's got a lot of explaining to do. How can they still follow Jesus if they can't see his feet in front of them anymore? How can we follow Jesus without his visible presence anymore? Are you with me? Jesus explains this new way of following him in our passage for today. Five things the first disciples need need to know to make the transition from the old way to the new way. And these things, of course, are also for us since we still live in the same age of the first disciples post-Easter. So we'll spend the rest of our time on these five things. Number one, scripture. The first thing Jesus knows his disciples must understand before he withdraws his visible presence is scripture. Jesus knows his disciples must understand scripture before he leaves. More specifically, did you catch this? The disciples need to know how to read the Bible correctly. And so Luke 24, Luke 24, verse 45, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, those of you who are at the Easter sunrise service will notice some repetition here. That's because Jesus has already done this same thing with the two disciples who were walking to Emmaus. He opened the scriptures to them, showing how Christ is the key to understanding the Old Testament. And now Jesus does the same thing to the rest of his disciples and to us. He shows us that Christ is the key that unlocks the true meaning of the Old Testament. And because this is true, Christ is also the key that unlocks the true nature of God. And because Jesus is fully human, Christ also is the key that unlocks the true nature of what it means to be human. So Christ is the key for reading the Bible rightly, and in the same way, Christ is the key for reading our own lives rightly. Are you getting this? Who is God? Who am I? These foundational questions Jesus says in Luke 24, Christ is the key for answering these. I like the way commentator Joel Green talks about this relationship between Jesus and Scripture. The quote is in the top of your sermon notes if you'd like to go back to it and chew on it later. He writes, What has happened with Jesus, his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, what has happened with Jesus can be understood only in light of the scripture. Yet, the scriptures themselves can be understood only in light of what has happened to Jesus. You may want to spend some time chewing on that later. But for now, there are four more points Jesus wants us to know if we're going to follow him in a new way. So second, we're going to need to know what to say to others. We need to know what to say once Jesus is not with us in the same way. Think about it. For the past three years, the disciples could just direct everyone's questions to Jesus himself. You know, when Stephanie and I were in seminary, we had professors, and somehow their answers were just always so much better than any answer we could come up with, right? So, you know, a friend, we're talking to a friend about something with theology, and we just want to direct them to the professor, right? The professor has the answer. And that's what the disciples 
could do with Jesus. If they ever needed any talking points, well, they could just ask the master directly. But now things are going to be different. They're going to be without this same sort of privilege. So Jesus gives us and them the most important talking points ahead of time. Here's what to say, Jesus says. Verse 47. Proclaim in Jesus' name repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Proclaim these, announce them, and be sure to talk about them in the name of Jesus. Always help people understand repentance and forgiveness in light of Jesus. The popular view of repentance in American culture is that it's a dark and somber thing, and we get this view from the Old Testament prophets. And so we think of the phrase, turn or burn, and the turning we call repentance. But that view of repentance frankly misses the mark. It's so easy to misunderstand the word, which is the Greek word metanoia. And so I've included a a definition under key terms in the sermon notes. Metanoia means turning around. And so the turn part of the phrase turn and burn is correct. But the reality is that we are already burning, are we not? We don't need reminded of that. We are already burning with anger. We are already burning with lust. We are already burning with exhaustion, despair, loneliness, anxiety, and fear. And of course, we will continue on burning in those ways if something doesn't change. Therefore, the message Jesus wants us to tell others isn't supposed to be a somber threat. That idea completely misses the mark. Friends, remember, Jesus has just risen from the grave. He has just conquered sin and death. This is the, this is the highest note of human history. You might say the most optimistic point of human history. And so he's not bringing this note down a few octaves by telling us to threaten others with a message of repentance. No, Instead, Jesus calls us to relay to others an invitation to apply the saving work of Jesus to one's own life. The message of repentance that we are to relay to others is the invitation to apply one's own life, to apply to one's own life the benefits of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So if we understand it in light of this, the call to repentance following the Easter verdict is a joyful call indeed. It is now actually possible to stop burning, to stop burning with lust, with anger, with fear. This is actually a possibility because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's actually possible to get back on the road that we've strayed from. It's actually possible to turn around and get back on the road that leads to the good life. This is the road that Adam and Eve strayed from so long ago. That's why Jesus is called the new Adam. The curse has been undone. Sin, death, and the devil are defeated. That's why Jesus came to rescue the world. So now we have something to say about this. Recognize what Jesus has done for you. 
and turn around and get back on the road that leads to the good life. And the good life is this. This version, Jesus' version of the good life is this. It's a life lived in the presence of the God who is love, in a community marked by that love, with the mission of expanding that circle of love to include more and more of our neighbors. That's the good life. And that's what we have to say to the world. And we also have to say something else, and it's directly related. In light of the cross and the empty tomb, we also have to say this. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are free to turn around, to do the business of repentance, to return to the road that leads to the good life, Because you are forgiven, Jesus has nailed your sins to the cross. So my friends, listen to this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, hear the good news. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Friend, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. Friend, Jesus has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means to be bought back. We're bought back from slavery, (laughs) We were in slavery to sin, in slavery to our burning desires, burning with anger, with lust, with fear, with anxiety. In Christ, we have redemption. So this is what we say to others. Once Jesus withdraws his visible presence, the first disciples and us are to say these things. To say in Jesus' name that there is repentance and forgiveness of sins. These are our talking points. There's actually one more talking point, and we don't have time to explore it today, but you should know what it is. It is the the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus. Acts 1, which is the continuation of Luke, says that Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection talking about God's kingdom. This was the primary theme of Jesus' teaching post-resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days talking about God's kingdom. There's a lot to say, a lot more we could say about that. Uh, I think you've already heard us talk about the kingdom of God to some length, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more. Uh, But for now, we just need to note that, that this is one of the other key talking points. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, the kingdom of God. So now we return to the two points we've covered so far. Now, we know how to read the Bible, point one, and now we know what to say, point two. But to whom do we say it? This is the third thing Jesus wants us to know after his resurrection. Verse 47, here's who you tell about repentance and forgiveness in God's kingdom. Talk about these things to all nations, all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, this seems pretty obvious to us, to all nations, but to the first disciples, 
This was a big pill to swallow. To all nations meant to all nations, including a whole lot of Gentiles they didn't like and would rather avoid. I don't want to belabor this point, but just know that for Jews who had long saw themselves as God's chosen people, the idea of widening the circle to non-Jews was not an easy one to accept. Maybe somewhat like the Dutch Reformed decades ago, widening the circle to include the non-Dutch. I've read my history. (laughs) But Jesus makes clear that all nations and all people groups are the intended recipients of the good news of Jesus. The Apostle Paul underscores this point in his letter to the Ephesians chapter 2. But now, thanks to Christ Jesus, you who were once so far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ is our peace. He has made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. That's what we need today, isn't it? So now we know how to read the Bible. And now we know what we are to say, and now we know to whom we are to say it. So now Jesus adds a fourth thing that the disciples need to know as they transition from following Jesus in the flesh to following Jesus in the new way. And the fourth thing gets at their identity. They need to know who they are. And Jesus tells them who they are in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. In the old way of following Jesus, they understood themselves as literal followers of Jesus. (laughs) They were disciples because they literally went wherever he went. They put one foot in front of another, and they followed Jesus. That's what it meant to follow Jesus. But not so in the new way. In the new way, they should think of themselves as witnesses, Now, I've defined witness in your sermon notes because we often have the same problem with the word witness that we do with repentance. We tend to think of witnessing in terms of sharing our our faith with non-Christians. Sometimes we think of witnessing in terms of presenting a step-by-step guide to non-Christians to consider if they wish to be saved. Now, I'm not here to critique that method of evangelism, though I have noticed among our own generation it has seemed to lost its effectiveness. But all I want to say is that that's not what the Bible means when it says witness. When the Bible talks about witness, it's using the, the Greek word martus. Can you say that with me? Martus. Mar- you can even roll the R if you want. Martus. Sounds like the word martyr. And that's no accident. A martus in the first century was simply someone who talked about something they experienced. So just as a witness of a crime, you know what I'm talking about, you watch crime shows, I'm sure many of you do. Just as a witness of a crime takes the stand to talk about what they saw, so witnesses of Jesus talk about what they've seen and experienced. And if only a few people saw the crime, say only two people saw the crime, and you were one of them. Now, one could argue that you have a moral responsibility to tell people what you've seen, right? 
you have a moral responsibility as a witness of the crime to speak up for the truth. Now, in the same way, this is how Jesus sees these first disciples. They are witnesses in this sense. They have a moral responsibility to talk to others about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because they've seen it firsthand, and not everyone can say that. Friends, these were and are and forever will be the most significant historical events in world history, Christ's life, death, and resurrection, to which we shall one day add Christ's return. And the first disciples who witnessed these things had to take that role very seriously. And as we know, they did. In fact, they take it so seriously that they do not let anything prevent them from talking about it, even death itself. That's how the word martus, which simply meant witness, becomes the word martyr. So many of the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection become martyrs for the faith. Of course, this title of witness doesn't apply to us in the same way as it first did. Now, I don't know about you, but I must admit that I personally have not seen Jesus in the flesh. I personally was not there when he rose from the grave. Any of you? Show of hands. So we aren't witnesses in the same way, are we? However, however, I have seen Jesus at work in the new way. That is, through the Spirit, which we sing about. And I'm sure many of you have, too. I've seen Jesus at work in my own life through the Spirit, and I'm sure you've seen Jesus at work in your life, too. So in that sense, Jesus identifies us, too, as witnesses. This also comes with a personal responsibility to talk to others about what we've experienced through the Spirit. You are witnesses. But I think a more important title for us today comes from the words of the risen Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. You see, during these 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, we, we also have words not just in Luke, but also in Matthew. And these words of Jesus we call the Great Commission. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples. Disciple, that's who we are. Larry punctuated that point earlier. We exist to love God, love others, and be disciples who make disciples. That's our identity in the new way of following Jesus. We are disciples. A disciple is a student of Jesus, and what we're learning is how to live and love like Jesus. A disciple, in other terms, is an apprentice of Jesus. And the craft we're learning is his craft of self-giving love. That's who we are, right? That's why we're here. You are my disciples, Jesus said. And now this title is about to be infused with new meaning after Jesus ascends into heaven. The new meaning of discipleship is the fifth and final thing Jesus wants us to know before he ascends. We find this new meaning in verse 49. And see, Jesus says, I am sending upon you, upon you, 
what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus is talking about what? About the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 verse 8 makes this even more clear. You will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the new meaning of discipleship centers around the Holy Spirit. This is the fifth and final thing we must know before Jesus leaves. And it's that Jesus actually isn't leaving at all. (laughs) We must know before Jesus leaves that Jesus actually isn't going to leave. (laughs) He's just going to be with us in a different way. That way is through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So to follow Jesus today means to follow the Spirit. This is the heart of Galatians 5, which is capped off with verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us follow the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, if that's where we get our life from, if it's the Spirit, then let's follow the Spirit. We used to follow Jesus in his literal footsteps, and now we follow the Spirit. That's how we follow Jesus. So in Galatians 5, Paul talks about life in the Spirit. And this is what disciples of Jesus are now to do. We live in the Spirit. And such a life bears certain fruits. Fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what being a disciple of Jesus means today. It means living in the Spirit in such a way that we bear these fruits. Now, just to be clear, this isn't some strange spirit. This isn't even a sensational spirit most of the time. It isn't a new spirit or an unknown spirit. No, it's the same eternal spirit that was with the Son and the Father in a perfect communion of love before anything was made. And it's the same ancient spirit that hovered over the waters of creation in Genesis 1. And it's the same spirit of revelation that inspired the prophets and the writers of Scripture. It's the same powerful spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. In fact, the spirit is so closely related to Jesus himself The Spirit, the water, baptism, here we go. The Spirit is so closely related to Jesus himself that Paul can call it in Romans 8, the Spirit of Christ. And we are to be immersed in the Spirit, right? I'm just doing it. We are to be immersed in the Spirit. That's right, I did it, Amanda. I do do need to be careful, I forgot about that. Friends, that Spirit is available to us. That Spirit wants to drench us with His fruits. That Spirit is good news, is it not? That Spirit's available to us with all its power and energy and strength. That Spirit is available to us by the grace of God, not by anything we've done. And we get it through faith, which is also a gift of God. That Spirit has been unleashed into the world at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. 
and we are witnesses of these things. Amen? Now, I could go on about this marvelous reality of life in the Spirit, but you're sure to hear about it more in our upcoming series on the gifts of the Spirit. For now, I just want to respond to one possible uh, critique to this news of the Spirit. One possible critique is to view this new way of following Jesus as a downgrade from literally walking in the footsteps of Jesus. You know, when, when the first disciples walked in the dusty trail behind him, that, would have, that was the day. Man, I wish I, I wish I could have been there. But Jesus doesn't view it as a downgrade at all. In fact, Jesus actually sees it as an upgrade. How can this be? Why is following the Spirit an upgrade? Well, think about it. How many friends do you have? How many close personal friends do you have? How many people are you able to share deep intimacy with? Not more than a few, right? When Jesus was physically with his disciples, the Gospels tell us that Jesus only had a few as well, Peter, James, and John. That's because Jesus was fully human. He was confined to his body. He could not be in more than one place at a time. He could not deeply invest in the life of someone in Palestine and also in Indiana. Because he was confined by space, he could only be present with whoever was in front of him. But now... Following Easter, and ultimately following Pentecost, the presence of Jesus is unleashed into the world. Now Jesus sends his Spirit, the invisible presence of God. Now, we all who are disciples, we get to enjoy this personal, intimate fellowship with Jesus through the Spirit. We all get to experience that. Now, in the words of Anna May, forgive me for not asking you permission, Now, in the words of Anna Mae, I'm never alone. Now, I am never alone. Friends, this is the fifth and final thing Jesus teaches us after his resurrection. Now, none of us are ever alone. That's a word for a culture of loneliness, isn't it? Jesus will no longer be with us in the usual way, But Jesus will still be with us in a powerful way. I will be with you through the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. And now we are never alone from today until the day we die and even after the grave. Nothing can separate us from the love and presence of Christ. Now we are never alone. Friends, that reality is available to all peoples and all nations from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's what we need to know to live in the age of the Spirit. We don't need to settle for a life of just trying to be a good person and keeping ourselves entertained and making the most of it. No, we can actually still follow Jesus by following the life-giving Spirit who desires to make his home in us. Do you want that? I want that. So as we live in this period of time, Remember these five things. First, you have your notes? We must know how to read the Bible, the entire Bible, in light of Christ as the key. Second, we must know what to say to others. 
And our message is repentance and forgiveness as understood by Christ on the cross and the tomb. Third, we must know to whom do we say this, which is everyone, even to those we'd rather avoid, even to those not like us. And fourth, we must know who we are. We are witnesses of the Spirit's work in our lives, and we are disciples of Jesus, apprentices, learning his craft of self-giving love. And fifth, we must know the new way in which Jesus is with us. He is with us through the Spirit, and now we are never alone. So may the teachings of the Easter Jesus comfort challenge and strengthen our hearts and minds this week through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.